What is the significance of the recent assassination of Russian opposition politician Boris Nemtsov in the context of the larger geopolitical events swirling around Russia and Ukraine? Do the recently announced dispatches of U.S. and Canadian troops to the region signal a build-up to war with Russia? What accounts for the Canadian media's clampdown on the facts around the conflict in eastern Ukraine? What kinds of internal threats does President Putin face, and how is he overcoming them? This week on the Global Research News Hour, with NATO forces building up in Russia's backyard, we explore the internal and external pressures Russian President Putin is being subjected to, and the options he and the world can adopt in order to resolve a major power's standoff over Ukraine. Our guests will be two co-editors of the site NewColdWar.org, Roger Annis and Alan Freeman. On this week's program, New Cold War and the Politics of Russia. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of March 6th, 2015. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We can also now be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. A top NATO commander believes it is essential the United States, quote, train, advise, and equip the national security forces of Georgia, unquote, as the country and region focus on maintaining stability and security. NATO's supreme allied commander in Europe and chief of the U.S. European Command, Philip Breedlove, said it was essential the U.S. offer support to Georgia and other U.S. partner countries in light of the ongoing instability in the region. As U.S. partners, Georgia, Moldova, and Ukraine face a different security challenge from Russia than those facing NATO allies, he said in a report presented to the Senate Armed Forces Committee. All three countries have implemented political and economic reforms to advance democracy and integrate with Europe. However, their ability to make further progress is significantly constrained by Russian interference and pressure. That was an excerpted article from Agenda.ge, one of several found in the article U.S.-NATO preparing for war against Russia, holding largest Arctic war games in decade, training and arming Georgia, Moldova, Ukraine. Latest news on Stop NATO. Posted March 4th. Altered Genes, Twisted Truth is a new book by the U.S. public interest lawyer Steve Drucker. The book is the result of more than 15 years of intensive research and investigation by Drucker, who initiated a lawsuit against the U.S. Food and Drug Administration that forced it to divulge its files on GM foods. Those files revealed that GM foods 
first achieved commercialization in 1992, but only because the FDA covered up the extensive warnings of its own scientists about their dangers, lied about the facts, and then violated federal food safety law by permitting these foods to be marketed without having been proven safe through standard testing. Drucker states that contrary to the claims of biotech advocates, humans have indeed been harmed by consuming the output of genetic engineering. The technology's first ingestible product, a food supplement of the essential amino acid L-tryptophan, caused dozens of deaths and seriously sickened thousands of people, permanently disabling many of them. That was from the article, The Impacts of Genetic Engineering, Not Science, Just Lies and Propaganda, The Massive Fraud Behind GMOs Exposed, by Colin Todd Hunter, posted March 5th. President Obama received the prize on October 9th, 2009, after nine months in office. There is question whether he had already perpetrated the June 28, 2009 coup that overthrew the progressive democratically elected president in Honduras, Manuel Zelaya, and installed the narco regime that followed after. But Obama, and especially his Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, certainly were the key people in enabling that regime to remain in power after almost every other government in the Americas and many around the world had declared them illegal. Then, President Obama in 2011 bombed Libya into anarchy and turned it into a failed state with rampant tribal and religious wars. In 2014, President Obama carried out a Ukrainian coup which removed the democratically elected president, Viktor Yanukovych, and replaced him with a racist, fascist, anti-Russian regime which is bombing the area of Ukraine that had voted 90% for Yanukovych. Perhaps nothing in the history of the Nobel Peace Prize has embarrassed that committee as much as the premature granting of this prize to the man who is increasingly viewed around the world as George W. Bush II. As with, well, that was from the article, Head of Nobel Peace Prize Committee is Fired, Requests Obama to Return 2009 Peace Prize, by Eric Zeus, posted March 5th. The tensions that Washington is deliberately stoking in Europe are an attempt to estrange the EU from Moscow as a means of allowing the continuation of U.S. empire building in Eurasia. This is Washington's version of a modern great game. Even Brzezinski's warning about the resurgence of the middle space, i.e. Russia and the post-Soviet space, is about the area unifying to become an assertive single entity and not even an aggressive entity that is a military threat to world peace. Washington wants the Western periphery, the Euro-Atlantic, and Eastern periphery, Asia-Pacific, to integrate with it through the Transatlantic and Trade Investment Partnership, TTIP, and the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP. The EEU and any thoughts of a common economic space are a threat to the consolidation and merger of these regions with the U.S. This is why both Russia and China are being demonized and targeted. Moscow is being targeted via the instability the U.S. has helped author in Ukraine, as well as through a new wave of Russophobia, whereas Beijing is being targeted through Washington's so-called military pivot to Asia. That comes from the article, Berlin and Paris Look East. How Close Are We to a Common Economic Space? by Mahdi Darius Nazamroya, posted March 4th, originally appearing at RT Op Edge. 
These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. On Friday, February 27th, a prominent Russian political figure, Boris Nemtsov, was murdered. Some effort has been made to try to connect this tragedy with the Russian government. This latest event takes place in the context of significant military casualties by Ukrainian forces in the Donbass, increasing dispatches of Canadian and U.S. troops to the region, and an intensifying demonization campaign of Russian President Putin. To help contextualize these events, the Global Research News Hour is joined by two editors of the website, newcoldwar.org, a site which attempts to expose the truth about the Ukraine situation. Joining me now to discuss uh, some of the recent developments uh, in the wake of the uh, murder of Boris Nemtsov and uh, some of the evolving militarism around the uh, East Ukraine conflict, we have on the line Roger Annis. He is based in Vancouver and is a longtime socialist and trade union activist, a retired aerospace worker living in Vancouver. Roger writes regularly on topics of social justice and peace, and he is an editor of the website newcoldwar.org. Thank you very much for joining us, Mr. Annis. Oh, you're welcome. It's good to be with you. Okay. Now, uh, first of all, could I maybe get some of the uh, – what are some of the points that you think uh, our listeners need to keep in mind as, as we hear about the murder of this uh, Russian politician and the, some media uh, speculation, innuendo around uh, the idea that maybe this was somehow uh, an act of the Russian government? Yeah, that was the uh, uh, response immediately from uh, Western governments and also mainstream media. It fell flat pretty quickly. It was obvious that uh, this uh, this murder was a deeply troubling event for um, everyone in Russia, and that uh, the last person in Russia and in the world who had an interest in seeing this man killed was President Vladimir Putin. So... Uh, the media backed off uh, um, fairly quickly from the most outlandish of their claims that maybe this was a, a so-called hit um, organized by the Russian government. The theme now is that um, the Russian government has created a, an atmosphere of political intolerance in Russia that would give um, uh, encouragement and incitement to uh, to a murderer to kill uh, the politician Boris Nemtsov. So that's that's now the uh, the theme that we're hearing, and uh, you know it gets repeated so many times in so many outlets that uh, you know it's the old adage: if you repeat a lie often enough, people think, well, there must be some truth there. And I think we're at that stage. Um, now we've had a couple of uh, you know quite vicious editorials in a couple of uh, Canada's uh, leading uh, newspapers, the Toronto Star and the Globe and Mail. The Star, in particular, is uh, quite vicious in uh, accusing the Russian government of all sorts of heinous crimes. And so, um, you know, I think it's unfortunate that this uh, tragic event for Russians, this is a very troubling event for Russians and, of course, troubling for anyone around the world. And it's uh, it's very unfortunate to see this uh, manipulated in this way. And so, inevitably, I think the, uh, the fallout of the murder will tend to give a little bit of wind in the sails of 
uh, NATO's ongoing military buildup and threats against Russia, although it won't go as far as the uh, the editorialists and the government figures would like, but nonetheless, it should be a source of uh, much concern for um, you know your listeners that are concerned about the state of uh, peace and other such matters in the world. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you see uh, the? Uh the like you know h- however it's being framed in the media and i want to talk a little bit more in that about that in a minute but in terms of the way uh, gov- the united states and and the canadian governments are are reacting to the the news uh, yeah. how how do you see them like they're uh, um they are they're altering or uh, reinforcing their campaign as it were yeah reinforcing is the word i mean they are on uh, hell bent on a drive to weaken isolate place. There's a, a going on in Eastern Europe, including now in, in Ukraine itself, okay, by Roger, the NATO sorry, powers. Sorry, could I get you to repeat that? I, it's, it seems like you might have gotten cut off in a couple of places there. Sure, okay. Um, oh, now, what was that operative word you had in your uh, question? Either altering or, or reinforcing the uh, their agenda for, the, uh, their, for East Ukraine. Yeah, reinforcing their agenda is an operative word. They're using the occasion of this uh, tragedy to bolster the ongoing drive against uh, Russia. They have economic sanctions in place. They have a considerable military buildup going on in the countries that they uh, dominate in the region surrounding Russia going on. Uh, Now an escalation of the military uh, buildup in Ukraine itself taking place. So this is what they're uh, using this... uh, uh, this tragic event uh, for to continue to bolster the drive against Russia. The bottom line of that all is that they want Russia to police the uh, political autonomy movement of eastern Ukraine into submission. And so as long as Russia won't act as the uh, policeman, the handmaiden, you could say, of, of, of the NATO powers, then they will continue to punish Russia. And they're using this event, even if they can't make a convincing argument that the Russian government would have any interest in killing opposition politicians. They can't marshal any evidence. They can't marshal an argument that would make any logical sense as to why the Russian government would do this. But nonetheless, playing on, you know, popular uh, misunderstandings, uh, fears in some case, the whole gamut of prejudice that exists that they've helped to create in the public mind towards Russia uh, will, you know, give them some um, some leeway in using this uh, this event for their uh, ongoing campaign against Russia. But you know, for thinking people, uh, you know, it's just another evidence of how uh, irrational and dangerous this whole course by the NATO powers is becoming. Mm-hmm. Now. Um you you mentioned in a recent article that Nemtsov was uh, a harsh critic of the decision last March by the government of the autonomous region of Crimea to hold a referendum on the the future of the region. Um, but that that was still that was some time ago. I'm wondering if there's. Uh, um, I mean, is, is that merely just a part of the angle to uh, by the part on the part of the Western to uh, of the West to reinforce its propaganda campaign, or 
What, what well, yeah, for sure. The issue of Crimea is an ongoing uh, one. They continue to hold it up as an example of an annexation that Russia perpetrated on the people of Crimea. We've actually got some very good information on Crimea recently uh, uh, written or published uh, that's on our website now. Readers can find that in the uh, section dedicated to Crimea. You know, this is a very clear-cut case where last March, almost a year ago now, uh, uh, the people of Crimea looked at the uh, right-wing coup that took place in Kiev. Uh, Crimea has had long-standing grievances with its second-class status uh, in Ukraine. Uh, Crimeans were never given, a, you know, a free decision to join Ukraine in the first place back in 1954. So they simply exercised, uh, uh, you know, a democratic process of exiting Crimea, seceding and joining the Russian Federation. So, but you know, these basic facts of how this was carried out, uh, of course, have not been reported in mainstream media, and they, they um, you know, present everything that took place in Crimea last year as being, a, you know, manipulated by the Russian government. Uh, it's certainly unfortunate to see opposition Russian politicians like Nemtsov uh, use this. You know, he was a spent political figure in Russia. Um, he ran for uh, to be mayor of Sochi in the run-up to the, uh, the Winter Olympics held in, in Sochi in 2009. He got 14% of the vote in the city of Sochi running on a, you know, sort of on an anti-Olympics, anti-corruption program. So, you know, this was a, a man who, you know, had served in very high um, positions in the government of Boris Yeltsin in the 1990s, which carried out the catastrophic uh, transition away from the uh, uh, state-owned and regulated economy to the sort of wild market capitalism. Uh, and Russia went through terrible years in that process. So he was in the part of being in the driver's seat thing being, uh, at that time. So, you know, this is why he was not, uh, he's no longer a popular uh, president, uh, sorry, a popular uh, political figure, but of course this too is uh, lost in the, in the past. You know, Nemtsov is a figure, uh, a figure who might have the support of 1% of the Russian people. Uh, President uh, Putin in Russia has the support of 85% of the Russian people. So, you know, what does that tell you about the political situation in Russia? But, you know, this is not how the, uh, the whole event is uh, presented to us. Yeah, politicians like Nemtsov who've turned against um, Russia in this conflict with NATO and have, you know, cynically used the war in, in eastern Ukraine and the events in, in Crimea to join the NATO chorus, uh, claiming Russian intervention in all these events is just a sign of how, uh, you know, how much of a, pa- a spent uh, political figure that he, uh, and for that matter, his political movement have been, even if, you know, Sure, they're an important voice in Russia, and they have and will continue to uh, to have a voice in the political process. Okay. Now, there was uh, an announcement uh, recently about uh, U.S. troops being dispatched to Ukraine, uh, ostensibly to provide training. Uh, as well, we have Canadian soldiers, uh, according to a government uh, release, uh, they're departing for Operation Reassurance in Eastern and Central Europe. H- how do you interpret those uh, mobilizations? Are we looking at a, uh, the, the, uh, <clears throat> the early stages of a war, or do you take their, what they're saying at face value? What's your uh, assessment of that? Yeah, these two recent um, announcements are um, they're part of the ongoing military buildup. Uh, NATO for um, since you know the political events exploded in uh, Ukraine a little more than a year ago have been on a very ambitious uh, series of uh, uh, military uh, uh, measures in Eastern Europe to almost too many to uh, count. There's it's so so much uh, going on the military exercises, naval, air, and uh, and land. It's incredible, and these. Uh, Two that you mentioned are the most recent, but you know, there's something new and significant about the U.S. sending um, 
soldiers to Ukrainian soil. It's not the first time they were they had military exercises on Ukrainian soil last year, but this time the action by the U.S. is in the context of this uh, ongoing talk of escalating uh, Ukraine's war against uh, the east of the country, which is you know what I call it and what it is. It's a war by Kiev against the people of eastern Ukraine. Um, you know, there there's a talk of escalation in the air of providing more deadly weapons uh, to the Kiev armed forces and to the extremist militias that are allied with uh, with it. That's who these uh, U.S. troops that are uh, on their way now to uh, to Western Ukraine are going to be to be training. And if they do conduct an escalation of the arming of the Ukraine government, this would allow at some point in the future the Ukraine government to resume. A military offensive that was stopped dead in its tracks um, this uh, these these past uh, six weeks, which is what you know led to the second uh, ceasefire that was signed uh, on the overnight of February 11th and 12th. Um, but the underlying political conflict here, which is the refusal of the Kiev government to recognize that the people of Eastern Ukraine should have some, you know, autonomous political rights. To defend their, uh, sorry, to determine their future. This is the political conflict that lies uh, at the heart of uh, the problem. Um, this refusal by Kiev to uh, to recognize and respect uh, forms of political autonomy in eastern Ukraine, and for that matter, in other parts of the country, demanding it as well, is what is fueling the conflict. This refusal. So as long as Kiev continues to take that stance, and as long as it continues to you know, to make these military threats, including this ongoing demand of theirs to get advanced uh, weaponry uh, from the U.S. and other NATO countries, then I'm afraid, uh, you know, we're not going to see any uh, real lasting peace uh, in Ukraine until this this Kiev government is stopped. It needs to be stopped by an international solidarity movement. It also needs to be stopped by its own people in Ukraine who are, you know, suffering on many fronts from the policies of this government. So, yeah, these latest measures, I'm afraid, just signal that, um, you know, the Western powers are hell-bent on continuing a course of confrontation. Now, I I think that this comparison has made before, been made before. If you had, say, uh, Mexico had, uh, say, they uh, established some new cooperation agreement with, uh, with Russia or the, the old Soviet Union, and uh, there was some sort of a, a civil war breaking out where there was a, an autonomous region, like just sort of on the uh, the border with the United States. One would tend to imagine the United States would uh, be wanting to react in in a, a more militaristic and, and with with much less restraint than what we seem to be seeing from Russia with regard to uh, Ukraine. Um, what to, how would you expect a, a leader other than Putin would react under the same circumstances? Well, we're used to seeing countries in the world that, uh, you know, due to economic pressure or outright military threat, you know, bow to, um, you know, the demands of the, the U.S. empire and its NATO allies. So it's a rather unique situation now to see a Russian government with both the the, the political will and also the capacity to say, you know, that we're not your servant and we won't take your orders. Um, this is something we're not used to seeing. And no wonder, no wonder the NATO countries are, 
are so up in arms against Russia. Um, no wonder they've slapped an economic embargo against the people of Crimea. These big powers are not used to be told uh, to being told no. You know, think of the 60 years of economic embargo that they imposed against Cuba for daring to choose its own path of development. Think of how the people of Haiti have suffered for more than 200 years because they dared to rise up against slavery and uh, you know create an independent republic and uh, defy uh, the great powers back then and continuing up until today. So these um, these big imperialist countries have long memories. They don't like being told no, you can't do that. And so, you know, this is what we're seeing played out. And I think, you know, the example of what we can imagine if, <laughs> you know, the Mexican government were to sign a military cooperation agreement with Russia, well, you know, all hell would break loose. Well, you know, this is this is the position Russia is in. Uh, Russia was promised after the collapse of the Soviet Union that the NATO powers would not, uh, you know, seek to take advantage of the uh, political chaos to uh, encroach militarily against Russians, Russia's borders. And they've done exactly that for the last 25 years, and now they're at the last step, so to speak, before reaching Russia's borders, which is to violate the sovereignty of Ukraine, violate the traditional neutrality of Ukraine as being a country not, you know, allied with any uh, large military bloc, and, uh, you know, using the people of Ukraine as pawns in this, uh, you know, ongoing historical conflict with Russia. So, you know, I hope, uh, you know, the best hope for the situation is that more and more people in the world, including in Canada, wake up to what's going on, stop listening uh, to so much of the anti-Russian propaganda, uh, you know, make our own minds up as to what's going on and uh, see the threat of this uh, of this military buildup by NATO, where it could lead to. I mean, these are countries that have nuclear weapons, and the United States has embarked on a, a vast program of modern, modernization of its nuclear weapons program. Why on earth would it be doing that in a time of climate crisis? Well... You know that's that's the danger that we're that we're seeing. Now, speaking about the propaganda campaign, now you also uh, have done extensive writing on the situation in Haiti and have commented on the uh, the, the lack of accurate information with regard to uh, what happened there with the, the coup, essentially by the United States, Canada, and France uh, in two thousand four. And uh, to a certain extent, that was related to the uh, the role of certain. Uh, corporations uh, in, in, in and around Montreal uh, who saw an interest in basically the colonization of Haiti. I'm wondering, with regard to Ukraine, what forces you see that are, are obstructing an accurate reflection of what's really going on out there? Uh, well, the two big ones are, of course, our government, uh, and I'm, I'm, I regret to say uh, the opposition parties in Parliament as well. Uh, we have seemingly a unanimous voice going on in Ottawa over the events in Ukraine. No one is questioning the uh, the actions of the Ukrainian government, the uh, the war it's waging against the east of the country, the the, uh, the the rise and the prominence of the extreme right in Ukraine and the role that that's playing in the, in politics, uh, you know, the economic calamity going on in Ukraine as a result of the uh, the uh, the waste of time, money and resources on a war in the east and so on. That's, uh, you know, r- really bad to see. And then uh, the twin uh, of that is, is our mainstream media, which has simply been repeating the tune that the Canadian government has said all along, which is that the events in Ukraine and in Crimea are driven by Russian aggression. And uh, if anything, that tune is deepening. Uh, and this is what I've been writing about most recently. It's very concerning that, uh, firstly, the Toronto Star and now the Globe and Mail, as of last week, 
are publishing articles that are promoting the fundraising campaigns of the extreme right. Um, um, I've written a number of a string of articles about the Toronto Star trying to draw the attention of uh, hopefully its writers and editors as to uh, you know the danger of this course that they're on in uh, promoting these things. There's one of them is called Army SOS, Patriot Defense, and these are uh, these are you know fundraising campaigns of the extreme right now that uh, the Globe and Mail has. Uh, has done likewise just in the past week. So uh, we're not only badly served by the media, but uh, the media is playing a very, very aggressive role in promoting uh, uh, the view of events uh, coming out of the Kiev government and NATO, but now in, uh, in actually, um, you know, not only failing to report on the prominence of the extreme right of Ukraine in the political events, but actually... Um, you know, giving uh, giving cover and, and and support to it, it's uh, very concerning. And uh, you know, I could also throw in here the um, you know the editorial in the Winnipeg Free Press was it about ten days ago, uh, again endorsing the um, you know this this course towards military threat by NATO. So uh, you know, people of Canada have got to uh, you know got to get organized to speak uh, out against this. If, if readers look on our website about the latest compilation of information in response to these. A latest Globe Mail article. It's actually very, very encouraging. The readers of Canada's mainstream press are a lot more informed where than the writers and editor editors of those uh, press. So, uh, but you know that's unfortunately most people don't read the fine line of the very intelligent comments that are posted to these. Um, overall, we need a you know a really aggressive pushback where Canadians can be learn you know can learn you know just the basic truths of what's going on and as you said uh, when you talked about the role of the Russian government you know this is not an this is not the aggressor government events of, of Ukraine the aggressor governments are are those that are grouped in the NATO military alliance Roger Annis thank you very much for sharing these thoughts with us and uh we'll look oh, you're very welcome uh, Roger Annis is a longtime socialist and trade union activist and uh, writes regularly on topics of social justice and peace he is an editor of the website newcoldwar.org You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. Well, joining me now to uh, help contextualize the uh, the current events happening. Uh, within uh, Russia is Alan Freeman. Uh, he's formerly an economist working with the Greater London Authority and uh, a visiting professor at the London Metropolitan University, now living in Winnipeg. He's also a co-editor of the Future of Capitalism book series, and he has visited and spoken on the political and economic dynamics affecting Russia and the former Soviet Union. So, uh, Mr. Mr. Friedman, thank you very much for joining us. Um, now, we, we've been hearing a lot in the news lately uh, in the wake of the, uh, the assassination of uh, Nemtsov and uh, a lot of the uh, innuendo, if not uh, you know, what's being actually alleged, is that uh, somehow the Russian government was behind this assassination. 
So I'm hoping you can help our listeners uh, maybe acquaint us a little bit with uh, some of the dynamics within Russia. I mean, what would be the motive for this murder? Would Putin have any particular motive for uh, taking him out? And um, how you see this playing out in terms of the, the larger situation vis-a-vis uh, the conflict in Ukraine? Well, the first thing I want to say is that the truth is a very difficult thing to get at. And it's become more difficult to get at because the atmosphere we're living in now is very warlike. The need to construct a source that really tries to get to the, tr- the bottom of the truth was the motive behind setting up newcoldwar.org to, to, to scrutinize reports, to carry reports from a variety of points of view and to develop a network of sources. Now, I'm prefacing it in that way because my sources as regards what's happening with Nemtsev are underdeveloped. I'm going to be in Russia again. Uh, I go regularly for a conference on the Russian economy in March and I hope when I'm there to exchange ideas and my friends and so on. But uh, I'm speaking from a a certain lack of knowledge. So I'm I'm just going to outline generally what I think the position is of Putin and then advance a number of the hypotheses that are going around. There is a myth that Putin is somehow the new Tsar of Russia and is in total control. He's not. It's a very, very important thing to understand. Putin is not in control. And in a very deep sense, Putin has not been in control of events either in Crimea or in um, the Eastern Republics. These events are driven by the dynamics that are unfolding on the ground in those places. Um, A wonderful story, a very clear story I was told, and I double-checked this, and a number of sources from somebody involved in the negotiations between Crimea and Russia, was that when the the Crimean Republic seceded uh, from, from Uh, Ukraine, there was a discussion about what its status would be within Russia and who would be in charge of it. And the Russians sent a bunch of people and they said, uh, well, here's who's going to run your police force, here's who's going to run your army, here's who's going to... And the Crimeans said, oh, no, you're not. Here, Here are the people we have appointed to run things, and you're not running anything. And actually, the Russians had no choice because they would have had a rebellion on now their hands. Now, that's something we don't hear about you, you, at you all. Don't, I mean, you don't hear that. The common now, narrative is that the Crimeans, because these Russians came in, and so the Russian army came in, they were under duress, and so they had to go along with it. There's a phony referendum. But the Crimeans are actually standing up to the Russians and, and asserting themselves. They, they stood up to the Russians, and there's plenty of evidence of that. Uh, we haven't got time to go through it, but again, <laughs> go to the new Cold Order.org site, and you'll, you'll see some of the discussion around that. Mm. And the same is what in the republics, Donetsk and Lugansk, when we talked to the people from those republics, we met them in Crimea a year ago. What becomes very clear is that the movement that began in those republics was a movement essentially of self-defense. People began simply saying, look, we have the right to speak Russian. They were attacked by right-wing fascist gangs. And, and I use the word fascist very advisedly. I mean people who espouse the doctrine of ethnic purity, racial superiority, and who engage in uh, paramilitary state violence to kill people that they think are opposed to that. That's what I mean by fascist. It's not a generally abusive term. They were being attacked by organized groups in groups of that nature, and the police were doing nothing to protect them. So they began to organize self-defense. They found that the authorities that were established, which were the ones arising from the previous regime, were not supporting them. They took over the town halls and they began to organize. They then found they were subjected to military violence. So they began to arm. And that's a very different process 
to the one we've heard described. And in fact, one of the things, the permanent themes that runs through um, the exchanges we have with people from uh, that area is that they're actually very anti-Putin because they regard Putin as somebody who has essentially sold out their struggle. The view after the first defeat of the Ukrainian army, I'm not talking about the most recent one, but when there was the big um, drive south towards Azov, was that if the Russians had not reined them in, they would have got down to Mariupol and they would, have, they would have got to the sea and they would have cut the Ukrainian army off completely from the east. The second one, um, you, all the controversy around Diabaltseva, well, uh, Putin actually signed a deal which was going to let Diabaltseva go. And they said, no way, it's absolutely a critical land junction. It's a railway junction. So they're connecting up the two republics. That's, that's what that is about. We can't defend ourselves if we do not control this. We can't create anything that, 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 that's viable, either militarily or economically. And they, 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 they still, from a pure security point of view, feel that they have, in those negotiations, let go uh, uh, things of strategic military importance. So there's no love lost between the Eastern Republics and Putin. And the same is true in Russia. There are many diverse interest groups in Russia conflicting with each other. And what Putin does is balance between these groups and try and move them in a direction... I would say which he believes to be correct. Most people in power, there's a lot of cynicism, but have some kind of set of beliefs in what they think should happen. And I think that Putin does have a set of beliefs and values, which are, of course, not just his personally, but those of the particular group that propelled him to power, that group of ex-KGB officers that saw 1990 as a complete economic catastrophe in Russia, saw Russia being torn apart by the neoliberal policies that it was being um, urged to accept and argued that something different had to be done. So Putin is not in control. He steers between a number of groups. Now, who are these groups? The first and most important group is the poor of Russia. And one has to understand the devastating effect on the living standard of ordinary Russian people that resulted from the measures after, after the fall of, um, uh, of the Soviet Union um, uh, and Yeltsin. Living standards fell by, you know, up to sort of 50%. The, the, the most telling indicator is uh, life expectancy, which fell, now don't quote me on this because I don't have the numbers in front of me, but you can go and check it out. It fell by 10, 15 years. You, you have to have pretty big fall in living standards for life expectancy to fall by 15 years. That's, that's a major uh, social catastrophe. So the very first thing that Putin did was simply restore the living standards. And all the figures that I've looked at show that the first thing Putin did is massively increase the living standards of the very poor. Mm. What he did not do was do away with inequality. One of the things that w Russian society was like before Yeltsin, and again, you know, People will call me a Soviet lover or something for saying this, but you just check the numbers. Is It was much more equal society than it is now. Certainly miles more equal than America is now or ever has been. Mm -hmm. uh, there were rich and privileged classes and there were the, the, the nomenclatura. Uh, by the way, they still exist. You, know. you um, were mentioning uh, <clears throat> I mean, yeah, yeah, that sure, Putin sure. Is, is basically having to negotiate, navigate among different uh, forces uh, within the society. And of course, you just mentioned the poor, uh, the poor people. 
people is is one such force. I'm kind of curious about some of the other forces. Well, uh, these, that, these uh, are the rich classes, the I'm wealthy classes. They, they came into existence, and they still existed, and that arose basically from the privatization of the big Russian resources, because the privatization didn't consist of some kind of mass sale and people from Winnipeg could come along and buy a factory. They just gave them to the former bosses. So a lot of people who were previously high ups in the Communist Party became overnight very rich capitalists and immediately organized themselves because it was politically very unstable to hang on to that wealth. So they formed uh, paramilitary organizations. They formed the mafia. They started shipping that money rapidly out of Russia. So you have arrival in London when I was there, you know, the kind um, of Veresovsky. Uh, the, the guy who bought Chelsea, you know, the, you had a new star mafia arriving suddenly in London. And, and, and these were the guys who were shipping their money out. Fabulously wealthy, but basically just trying to consolidate their position. What happened is that they divided into two around the measures that Putin was taking. Essentially, those who said our future lies with Russia and those who said we've got to get out, our future lies with the West. And the succession of a very... Um, tense events in which people were actually murdered and we don't know who murdered them, mm -hmm. essentially arose because there was that division of the oligarchy into those who are going to be the loyal oligarchy and those who are not. Now, the problem now is, for Putin in Russia, is the loyal oligarchy have huge connections with the West. They need an open Russian economy in which they can move large amounts of money between the two economies. And because they've, to a certain extent, been, been rather parasitic, they, they've just run down these big enterprises they run. And there's a new structure of industry being put together in Russia around Gazprom and natural resources. But a lot of the old uh, power stations and, and essential and transport and um, airlines, I had a very tragic encounter with that in, in, in Yaroslavl when the, the hockey team there died uh, as a result of a crash. The very, very inefficient airline. There's just people essentially trying to get a business and make as much money out of it as possible, run it down into the ground. Very, very sort of parasitic, mafiosi kind of bureaucracy. Well, the sanctions have forced Putin to deal with the unsolved, postponed problem of the reconstruction of the Russian economy on a different basis. And he is having trouble reining these people in. Mm. And one of the most plausible theories that I have uh, as regards the assassination of Nemtsev is that this was something to do with a rogue branch of either the Russian state itself or of the oligarchy settling scores because Nemtsev was of some influence. Now, more than that, we cannot tell. One of the difficulties with any thesis that implicates the Russian state is that almost nobody in the Russian state has any interest in the death of Nemtsev. Putin certainly does not. So there's not like Nemtsev was heading up any popular opposition. He's a busted flush. He's not part of any of the parties that are actually making ground electorally. There are parties who are making serious erosions into, uh, into Putin territory in recent elections. His party is not one of them. It's a busted flush. It's a little fragment of the bureaucracy. That's not plausible. The other hypothesis you have to consider, and it's really possible, is that it was an American operation. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is enormous evidence of American involvement in Maidan, directly and indirectly, of the famous speech of uh, Newland saying that she was actually picking the ministers of the Ukrainian government. So it's possible there is some operation going in Russia. 
when I look at the power structure of, say, mm-hmm. the United States or Canada, the people in control are essentially the, the owners of private capital. Okay, with uh, you've got uh, some possible consultation with the public in the form of elections, where you have two or three different parties that uh, uh, you know can alter their policies so, so as to uh, reflect the popular will. But by and large, the, the main driver is the owners of private capital, and I'm I'm wondering uh, if you're looking at Russia that, that you know people. Familiar with that power structure, but looking at Russia, what what are the key things we need to understand in order to understand where the United States and and NATO might go in terms of trying to influence the situation? Well, two things. I mean, what you have to understand uh, is actually not the internal power structure of Russia or America, but to understand that there are two blocks in the world. One is America, whose power is declining, uh, that is in alliance with NATO, which has bases in, you know, sort of everywhere in the world. The other is the emerging uh, nations that actually contain 80% of the population of the world, China, India, Russia, Turkey, and so on, uh, which are rising economic powers and are challenging American dominance. And American dominance is eroding itself, uh, thanks to the Tea Party and many other agents. Uh, American economy has been in relative decline for for 30 years, which is one of the things my uh, collaborator Radhika Desai has emphasized in in her new book. And the underlying story is the decline of American power. That's that's the key. So so if you can't hold on to it by economic means, you have to hold on to it by, by military means. And by, by now, even the military is not powerful enough. Uh, one of the problems exercising the Americans is in a knockdown confrontation with um, Russia or China on, 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 on native territories. It's very doubtful who would win. So you have to deal essentially by manipulation, doing the sort of thing they're doing in the Middle East, trying to find some other power you can get to use as a proxy to carry out your own, uh, to carry out your own policy. That, that's the first thing you have to understand. And then you have to put other things in that framework. As regards Russia and America, I wouldn't say that private capital is in control any more in Russia than in, than in America. I mean, there's a saying one has in America that they have the best government money can buy. There's, there's no way you can get to be a president without having the backing of huge capital. And the same is true in, 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 in Russia. What you have to understand is the character of the private capital and the character of the government. The character of private capital in Russia is not like there's a big long tail of small business like you have in the US and a massive lobby of, of, of small farmers and, 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 and shopkeepers and, and, and small business people. That these people are desperate because they don't get the support from the state that they need to survive. And in fact, the conference I'm going to attend in Russia is actually, a, ironically, a conference of Russian industrialists. And they, unlike uh, the Tea Party and the, you know, the sort of more neoliberal factions in American and, and Harperite Canada, actually have a different point of view, which is they want Putin's support because they're being destroyed. By Western, by Western infiltration and, uh, and influence. That, that's their fear. And you only have to look at what's happening to the economy of Ukraine now 
were the most destructive, unimaginable neoliberal measures, huge inroads in popular in, in the situation, which are going to destroy business in Ukraine are going on. So see, that's a real fear. So you have to invert your way of thinking. Not, not everywhere in the world is the world made up of, of people demanding that the state have small government. They want big government, but they want big government that supports Russian enterprise. Then you have the oligarchs. Now, the oligarchs are a combined... You don't have a phenomenon like that in, in, in America, I don't think. People who combine political and economic power in the same person. Essentially, capital in America and Canada buys power. It doesn't exercise it. The only country I know in, in, in the Western world where people directly... The wealthy directly exercise power is Britain, where, where the best people are actually in the parliament and are elected because they're business people, right? So... The second thing is that you shouldn't get the illusion that there's no uh, parliamentary institutions in Russia. There are parliamentary institutions, there are parties, there are elections, um, and, and people win elections who don't support Putin. The main way that Putin exercises power is through the way his party, Russia, United Russia, operates, where essentially he co-opts people from the other parties into his own party and uses the state or his party uses the state to make it sure that the opposition will never uh, a serious and dangerous opposition will be absorbed within his party so his party tends to be the institution within which many of the debates about what's happening in Russian society get thrashed out. But he pays a price for that, which is, it's quite ironic, given the name of the party, United Russia. His party is not united. Mm -hmm. So his cabinet is not a cabinet that he would actually desire, I think, if he and his, the, the, the people who are behind the formation of Edinsvarasya and, and, and the new situation, would would support. He has people in there who are very strong supporters of retaining relations with the West, particularly people within Russian finance who are very and the Russian uh, natural resource sector who are very committed to keeping the doors open to um, uh, links with the West because that's the way you get the money out, to be quite mm. frank. These people are a very strong opposition within his own party, within his cabinet. And in many ways, what he's doing in the present crisis is reaching over that party to the people of Russia... With and, and, and reaching out to these small, these, these, these uh, the, and repressed and destroyed business classes that really want to build uh, some kind of uh, different capitalism with Russia, he's reaching out to them, and I think he's encountering opposition from within, from within his own party, from within the state apparatus, and from, above all, from within the oligarchy. That's what I think's really going on. I'm going to find out a lot more about it when I go there, because the scene in Russia changes very rapidly. But any idea that you have this some kind of monolithic tsar, it's a dream. It's not not like that at all. It's when when I sit down and, and share a beer with people in, in in any bar in Russia and and relay the way the Western press, they just laugh. They say yeah. this is ridiculous. This is absurd. This is not what's happening. There's a lot of extremely repressive and difficult practices in Russia, but they're not the ones that people think they are. Mm -hmm. they're, they're they're other ones. So I'm curious then if. Uh what uh, seems to motivate uh, Putin is um, 
a, a sense of wanting to uh, defend against uh, this ongoing incursion that's like right on his borders, but he seems to be expressing a certain amount of restraint. Should Putin's hold on power – I mean, uh, first of all, given what you've just described, do you see Putin at some point being overthrown or, or co-opted by the West or – I, I, what what would be the the critical factor in uh, in from the perspective of the West Western imperialists in uh, changes within Russia? Would he be replaced by some sort of a Yeltsin like figure, or uh, would he somehow have to be co opted or overthrown? H- how would Western imperialist objectives be uh, served by this destabilization that that seems to be going on? I don't think Russia is being destabilized. I think it's being restabilized. I think what's happening is that under the impact of sanctions, it's finally facing the choices, the historical choices that it has to make, which is that it has to turn eastward. It has to rebuild its relations with China. It has and to. And that's reco- what's happening. It's what's happening. It has to reconstruct. That's the obvious linkage. Um, essentially, the obvious linkage of the obvious center of gravity of world power, given the decline of American power, is the Russian-Indian-Chinese uh, alliance. That, that, that's so obvious, it stares out of the chessboard. And it, what American policy is essentially designed to do is they, they can't create a new government in China or, or Russia. They're, they're, they're too weak. They can't do it. Um, they have somebody in, Ameri- in India now who appears to be very sympathetic to neoliberal aims. We'll see how long that lasts and how much margin of maneuver this guy actually has. Very nasty guy, in my opinion, but we'll see what happens. But then there's no way you're going to get um, somebody pro-American in charge of Russia. There's no way you're going to get somebody pro-American in charge of China. It's not going to happen. So what they're trying to do is chip away. And in fact, the situation is very dangerous precisely because they are moving Canada. They are moving Europe. They're trying to move NATO forces towards confrontation with Russia and with China. The same thing's happening in the Pacific with, with attempting to stir up uh, mili- you know, the pivot to the Pacific is about a military alliance against China, which is unwinnable. They can't win that. So all they can do is destroy. So the aim of the Americans in Europe, I think, is first of all to stop, it's frankly to stop German influence being too big. It was a terrific defeat that Merkel and Hollande got a peace deal together, which the Americans were no part of. They were sitting together in a room with Putin at the beginning of their meeting without translators. They, they made a deal which America was nothing to do with. And America's biggest aim and biggest hurt is that Germany has taken its place, and Germany is an absolutely key actor in terms of relations with Russia. One of the things you also have to understand about Putin is the long-term dance which Germany and Russia have been doing towards each other, which began with Willy Brandt's Ostpolitik. And in a sense, the neoliberal wing that you find in Russia is, is, is much better defined as pro, pro is, is easily defined as pro-German as you could define it as pro-American. So the Americans are trying to reduce German influence, and Ukraine was a real prize in that respect. And the second thing they're trying to do is, is, to, is to chip off bits of Russian influence, because there are Russian populations outside Russia. And that's a fact. You can't just brand them as a fifth column. They exist. They have rights. In, in, in the Baltic republics, the power that is now occupied by the governments of those countries was succeeded essentially by stigmatizing, marginalizing, and, 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 and ruthlessly suppressing the Russian population. That's a time bomb. You can't 
keep that going forever. What America is trying to do is, on the one hand, make sure that these governments are absolutely in hock to it, that they need American military power in order to stay in government, and secondly, to hopefully chip away more bits. They tried, first of all, when they went to war in Afghanistan, to chip away Pakistan. That's more or less failed. Um, they'd like to bite off Kazakhstan, but no way can they get hold of such a, a large territory, Tajikistan maybe. So they were trying to get into the underbelly. That failed. They're now trying to constantly making moves to try and sort of capture Georgia and Belarusia is a constant thorn in their flesh. They want bits. They want to just eat away, eat away, eat away, reduce and move their forces like a giant chessboard right up to Russia's border and create such tension that Russia no longer be, is a, no longer capable of being an effective economic force. Insofar as they have any strategy, I think that that's what it is. And therefore, essentially, and I, I, again, I utterly fail to understand why anybody who champions Ukraine's independent national destiny doesn't get this. Ukraine is a pawn. Ukraine is being used as an American pawn in this giant game. And they're completely cynical. If you look at the measures that have now been undertaken at the behest of the uh, financial authorities, uh, the Kiev government has now introduced, they are most retrogressive economic measures, far worse than Greece, that any population in a so-called European country has ever suffered. And people put up with it. Why do they put up with it? Because they think that they have to keep the government in power to deal with the Russian threat. They could end it tomorrow. All they have to do is make peace with the Russian-speaking population of Ukraine, an independent peace, get the Americans out, get the Russians out too. Actually, a lot of the rebels would be very happy to be freed of Russian influence. And, and, and form a Ukraine, which is genuinely multi-ethnic, genuinely... That's all they have to do. The Americans want to stop that happening. They like to have an uh, ultra-nationalist with fascist fringe, very repressive government in Kiev, which will serve American interests and keep up the military pressure on Russia. And unfortunately, the Harper government is going along with that. They are sending, they are sending all the fusses about Russian uh, weapons in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Why are we sending weapons to Ukraine? Why are Canadian weapons going to Ukraine? Why are Canadian training units going to Ukraine? You're not going to make the situation any better. You're going to make it worse because um, the rebels, uh, the resistance, will respond tank for tank. They're not just going to sit there and say, sure, you can have big, you know, lethal weapons and, and destroy all our cities. They went through nine, nine months of being shelled by these lunatics uh, in the paramilitaries. They're not going to put up with that. And they're going to turn to Russia. It's not like Putin is some demon. What would you do in that situation? Kiev turns to America. These guys are going to, going to it's, yeah. it's so obvious. You have to downscale that. You have to start that happening you have to get a situation where ukraine independent ukrainians the people of the territory of ukraine independently determine their own destiny and you can only do that if you respect the peace you respect the ceasefire you give you recognize the autonomy you maintain the standards of living of the population you say you stick your finger in the air at, at, at the imf and and you create an independent economic uh, and a military destiny for ukraine so that's a rather long response, but um, Amer in, an, in some, America's aim is to stop that happening and to make sure that Ukraine remains a pawn of U.S. foreign policy, I'm very sorry to say. And they're very happy that Canada seems to be willing to act uh, as, as a pawn as well.
Well, Alan Freeman, I appreciate that rather extensive analysis of uh, this geopolitical situation vis-a-vis Russia and uh, Ukraine. I want to thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us. I want to thank you very much and appeal to your readers. There's something you can do. Come and help us get at the truth in newcoldwar.org. You can contact us, I'm sure, via Michael, and we'd be happy to welcome you in. Okay. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.